The Mindset Advantage, a podcast by Arcadia Consulting, architects of change. Hello, and welcome to the Mindset Advantage podcast. I am Cache Prescott, and I serve as the Director of People Experience for Arcadia Consulting. And today I get the absolute pleasure to hang out with and chat with uh, Mr. Aaron Mitchell, who serves as the Director of Human Resources for Netflix Animation. So how are you doing over there, Aaron? Doing great. Good morning, and how's everything going? So far, so good. So I was really looking forward to our conversation, particularly because I found out that we we are natives of the same state. Yes, we are. Uh, and so for us to have this sighting uh, when we last chatted was really exciting for me. So uh, for those of you who don't know where we're from, we are both from the state of Connecticut. And when Aaron and I connected a few weeks ago, we discovered that. And so uh, that was just one of the ways in which we connected. So uh, I'm excited to chat with you about other things, but um, we had a good time just talking about the best places to go eat and uh, the uh, places and spaces in Connecticut that not a lot of people know about. But <laughs> and, and we're going to spend some time talking about that because I think people need to know where the best pizza in the country is, right? <laughs> that that is a must know. So we're definitely going to touch on that. Um, but first and foremost, before we jump into the conversation about the amazing state of Connecticut and the good pizza, uh, I just wanted to kind of just touch base with you and just get a little bit more about your background and in terms of your role at Netflix. So tell me a little bit about what it is that you do. So I as I said, uh, lead HR for our animation studio. And, and really what that means is I am responsible for, you know, on, on the boring side of that, the policies, the procedures and things like that, that are required in order to run a studio. But for context, uh, Netflix animation is the largest studio animation studio of its type in history, right? We are producing something like 70 shows at a time across film, series, anime, adult animation, various styles. So that's 2D, 3D, stop motion, everything in between. And we're doing it right now across 27 different countries. And a big part of my job is to help work with, you know, all these amazing artists, producers, writers to create a culture that allows us to do this thing where we can tell stories from all around the world because historically animation, like a lot of parts of Hollywood, have not been open places for inclusion and, and different voices and different stories to be told. And if we get this right, we will have told stories about the world to the world from all around the world. And, and my job is to help to sort of work through the really challenging parts of scaling that because at the end of the day, creativity is chaos and our job is to scale chaos. Absolutely. So you can imagine, you know, I used to have very long hair and now <laughs> I don't. I love that idea of cre creativity being chaos because I, I feel like that is the perfect way to describe it. And also the perfect way to describe what it is that you're doing in terms of really trying to create this inclusive place and space. Uh, and like you said, scale this, this thing uh, when it comes to animation, because it's not something that we typically even think about when we think about that side of, you know, of 
the business. But before we jump in any any further, just give me um, a little bit of background about how it was that you even got to Netflix. You know, what was your career journey um, that even got you to this point where you could do cool things like this? So I'm I'm going to go all the way back to high school, which means I'm going all the way back to Connecticut. And I promise I will make it all make sense. So <laughs> I went to a performing arts high school. Um, I originally went to this performing arts high school uh, because I wanted to study visual arts. I used to draw a lot. I used to be into anime. Ah. And when I got to the school, my mom was like, but you also play the saxophone and the clarinet. So you're going to go for music. But I'm like, mom, I want to be an artist. And she's like, you're going for music. So I ended up going to this performing arts high school for music. Um, I played the saxophone now for over 25 years. I studied jazz. Um, but again, you know, had that foundation in an arts environment. You know, that, that when I talk about that chaos, that chaos sure. was, was every day in a performing arts high school. It was like fame, if you remember the movie fame, right? <laughs> Um, so I ended up going to college, um, and instead of studying music, I, I minored in music and I had a major in business. I got to college and I'm like, I want to do something in business, but accounting is boring. Finance is boring with funny words. And this, this is, this is how I was thinking as like a, you know, freshman in college, you know, risk management. I don't think I like that marketing. I didn't really understand it. And then finally there was HR and I'm like, human resources, I kind of get that. Like, I had always been into psychology, philosophy, always been into studying people. I'd have been that person that everybody could come and share their problems with and help them work through things. So I'm like, I can do that for a living and it's a business major. So I, I selected uh, HR and eventually um, started my career in HR after college. Um, so my, at the time, girlfriend, moved to Bakersfield, California. We went to college in Philadelphia. I moved out to Bakersfield, California, sight unseen. Um, eventually got a job uh, working at a company called Bolt House Farms, uh, doing HR, built my career up, was Sherm, the SHRM president really early on. But I, I, you know, I just started putting the pieces together. I'm like, I wanna do this HR thing. Did it at a food company that does you know, food processing, beverages, salad dressings, carrots, baby carrots. Baby carrots aren't really babies. We can talk about that if you want. Um, <laughs> and then, so fast forward, got to a point where I'm like, I need something else. I don't think I am going to get where I want to go in a career in HR without an advanced degree. Ended up applying and getting into Harvard Business School. Left Harvard Business School with an MBA in general management. Ended up at Citibank in New York because I thought, let me work in banking because everybody tells me banking is the most complex of businesses. So if I can cut my teeth in HR and banking, I might be able to do it anywhere else or everywhere else, right? Yeah. And I, joined, I, saw, I joined Citibank in 2010 as an intern, and that was right after you know, the financial crisis. So I got to work in executive <laughs> yeah. compensation working on the response to the Fed around how we're going to restructure executive comp in this sort of new era. Ended up spending five and a half years at Citibank. Four and a half of those years were in Singapore. So I got, I got shipped out to Singapore after my first year there. Um, did a bunch of really cool things, all still in HR, but you know, just solving these really big complex problems. And in Singapore it was, we had to hire 20,000 people a year across 14 different countries. And we had no systems and we had no processes. So they're like, fix that. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I got it. 
if you think I can, I suppose I should. So I did that, had an amazing time in Singapore, got a call for a company um, called Mass Mutual in Boston. It was supposed to be this big opportunity to change culture, to run talent management, build out a, you know, build on to what they, what they already had in terms of campus um, and university programs. Didn't work out for me. I spent about 10 months there. But during that time, I had joined an advisory board. I had been on this advisory board for a recruitment technology startup. And on this advisory board, there's a woman from Netflix. At the time, Mass Mutual was crushing on the Netflix culture, like a lot of companies were, right? Everybody read the deck. They're like, oh, this is great. How can we do this? And now, you know, I'm, I'm trying to connect with people at Netflix. Like, I'm not interested in you as a company because I thought there's no way somebody like me with my background could ever end up at Netflix. But I really love to talk about the culture. No response, no response, no response. And so like eight months into this advisory board, I finally get a call from the woman who's on the advisory board with me. And she's like, hey, I don't know if this is appropriate, but I've been observing you for the last eight months. And you seem like somebody who could be a great addition to my team here at Netflix. Wow. I don't know if you'd be interested. And I'm like, um. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, I'm going to tell you what it was. I was like, um, nah, I'm straight because. Ooh. Right, right. Okay. I, had, I had a job lined up in Hong Kong. I had just come back from four and a half years of living overseas. And okay. I'm like, I don't think I want to stay in America. Interesting. So I, was, I was out. And so what ended up happening is I show up to this interview with Netflix being all honest, like, <laughs> like, why are you looking to leave? And I'm like, well, look, I'm not that interested in this role. I've got this opportunity in Hong Kong. Here's why Hong Kong is more compelling for me at this point. You know, I experienced four and a half years of living outside of America. And as a black man, that mm -hmm. was a very liberating experience because I had never just been an American. So I'm good. And so she's like, well, you should, we should continue this conversation. I'm like, you're not supposed to, you're <laughs> not supposed to respond to that. So then, you know, we kept the conversations going and, and, and the only reason I really took the interview to be honest with you is because, you know, I go back to my wife and I'm like, can you believe that Netflix reached out? Like, of course people would start talking to me once I had a job offer. Cause I had this verbal offer. For Isn't Hong that Kong. how it always works though? It's how it always works. Right. And so I'm like, I'm not really you know, going to do this thing. She's like, it's Netflix. Take the interview. I'm like, but we're going to Hong Kong, right? She's like, it's Netflix. Take the, Take interview. the interview. Absolutely. <laughs> so I listened to my wife like I always do, went through the interview process. And even though I did not have a background in entertainment, I did not have a background in tech, um, I sat down with the head of physical production. So this is a, somebody who's been in the film business for dang near 30 years at this okay. point. And he sits down with me after we, you know, we're chumming it up for about five or 10 minutes. And then he looks at me, he's like, so how is a guy who works for a life insurance company going to help me build a studio? And I'm like, I don't know, but I was like, I don't know, but I've never done anything I've done before. I worked for a carrot company and figured that out. I worked for a bank and figured that out. I was just at a life insurance company and I figured that out. I don't know how to do what I do until somebody lets me do it. So if you give me the chance, I'll figure it out. Apparently that was a good enough answer. And I got the job at Netflix. So hopefully this very long story doesn't, doesn't feel too long because <laughs> the, the sort of, the sort of key on that was 
like when I was at a performing arts high school, of course, the dream was like to be able to work in the business. But I never thought that was actually going to happen. When, once I was no longer a musician, I'm like, let me give up on those Hollywood dreams because mm. it's not going to happen. And then now I'm the head of HR for an animation studio, which for a kid who used to draw in math class instead of paying attention is like a dream job. Like I love, love, love the fact that I'm doing HR for the biggest animation studio in the world. It's like a dream job that I didn't think I could get. I, I mean, it, it just sounds like all the pieces just kind of came together and you and, and every piece of you <laughs> that it has exi- existed at some point really came together in this particular position. So it really does sound like a full circle moment. Um, and I saw on LinkedIn, you know, since we are, um, are connected on LinkedIn, you mentioned how, you know, you found your sole career because you listened to your wife. <laughs> so I'm glad she told you to take the interview. <laughs> she, yep. She is, um, you know, we've been together for 21 years and we met freshman year of college. And I, I, I'd like to say we have, we have been each other's biggest fans for the last 21 years. Right. Even when it's like, that's not going to work. You should not do that. We, we've spoken those hard truths to each other. So yes, 100%. I, I give her all that credit. But that's how it's supposed to be. And I, I'm so glad that, again, she encouraged you to do that. And again, it's the, the dream job that you never even knew was possible. And now you are, are there. And like you said, it, it began all the way, way back when in your time in Connecticut. So just to open the door to talking about Connecticut, what are your thoughts on the best pizza? So growing up for me, the best pizza was modern, a pizza. And by the way, if pizza doesn't have an A in front of it, you can't really trust it. That's, a, that's very much a New Haven slash Connecticut thing. And it's pronounced a pizza. So modern a pizza. We also used to go to SSS growing up. A lot of people say Peppies and Sally's, but Peppies and Sally's is like Geno's and Pat's in Philly. It's like... <laughs> It's okay, but there's better. So uh, it sounds like you're kind of a, a Pete's aficionado here. Um, I mean, <laughs> according to but, me, according to but, me. Uh, but we talked about this, you know, New Haven doesn't get the credit it deserves when it comes to the pizza scene. And it is definitely a competitor when it comes to other places that have what is perceived to be good pizza. Yeah. It's just like most people don't go to New Haven, so they don't know. Like I had, I put a poll out on, on LinkedIn at one point and I was like, best pizza in the country, New York, Chicago, New Haven, other. And a bunch of people like, how is New Haven on your list? I'm like, have you been to New Haven? Oh, well, I haven't. Because if you told me the best pizza was in Milwaukee, I'm going to be like, I'd have to go to know. So sure. Sure. I'm not sure but I'm not going to say no because I've never been to Milwaukee. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why people need to come to Connecticut first and foremost, and they need to go to New Haven and get some great pizza. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So let's bring it back to uh, a little bit of the things that you're doing at Netflix. So you served as one of the architects for um, Netflix's pledge uh, to invest 2% of its cash into black communities in the U.S. And this was in the thick of, you know, a period of social unrest. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the decision behind that and the role that your mindset played when it came to this particular endeavor? Absolutely. So, so, so first of all, thank you for asking the question. It's something that I love 
talking about, I can't tell this story enough. I'm going to take it back to October, 2019. So, and that's about, you know, maybe six months before the, for, before the initiative launched. Okay. Um, I had been as one of the recruitment leaders at Netflix been tasked with helping to figure out a diversity strategy for my functions. And I, I supported finance, legal, in HR. So we all had to come up with our own sort of diversity recruitment plans. And I'm not a big proponent or a big fan of diversity recruitment, right? Like, I think that the real way to close these gaps is through building better and stronger and more diverse networks. Absolutely. So that, so that became my focus. So what ended up happening is I came up with this idea that we eventually called the rewrite, which were a series of Jefferson dinners Jefferson dinners being we get eight to 12 people around a table and we talk about a single topic and the topic of discussion that we had chosen for this series of dinners was how to change the complexion and composition of the C-suite. Oh, I and love what that. We would, what we would do is we would get an executive, usually an individual, um, white, male or female from our C-suite and we would, I would facilitate a dinner discussion about that topic. And we would get all these voices from individuals from underrepresented groups so that these leaders could hear her firsthand what these experiences were. But more importantly, they use this as an opportunity to build real meaningful networks. Because, you know, like when you're having these types of conversations, it's not usually a mixed company. We don't, we're not usually comfortable telling sure. a lot of these stories in sort of open forum. And a lot of these discussions that you have from a diversity perspective at work don't really allow for that sort of exchange. So use this model to create real meaningful connections. And it was like, mm, we're going to do this. So we started doing it back in October and then the pandemic hits March of seven, March 7th. You know, I think we went out of, into work from home, like March 17th. So everybody's like, I guess we're not doing dinners anymore. And I'm like, but we like, this was working. We can't wait until this thing is over. Let's figure out how to do this virtually. I was talking about virtual reality. I was like, let's get all Oculus sets and maybe we can have virtual <laughs> dinner. And people were like, that's not gonna work. I was like, okay, fine, let's try Zoom. And everybody's like, nobody's gonna wanna eat Zoom or nobody's gonna wanna eat their dinner in front of a Zoom. I'm like, well, I'll try it. I'll bring that, the learnings back and I'll let you all know what happens, right? So April 16th, 2020, we have our first virtual dinner. Okay. And on that dinner, there was a chief lending officer from the Harvard Bank, which is a, a Black-owned, historically minority deposit institution, which is in Boston. Okay. And, I, you know, we're trying to talk about changing the complexion and composition of the C-suite. And this guy is super duper distracted. And at some point in the conversation, he's like, look, y'all, I think this is a very important conversation, but I'm trying to figure out how to get PPP funds to black and brown businesses in Baltimore that we don't even bank with because they're not getting the resources they need from their major banks. And I don't want to watch these businesses go under because every time we have a major crisis in this country, that's what happens. And of course, at that time, you had started to see the McKinsey studies around the disproportionate impact COVID was going to have on black yes. and brown communities. So a, dude, a guy in the, in, in, in the dinner is like, you know, we're talking about black banks and we're talking about corporations and we're talking about like, well, how do you get people out of these neighborhoods into these corporate roles if you can't even, you know, support economic development in these communities? 
And one guy's like, how do we get corporations to put their money into black banks? Mm. And that was when the light bulb went off. And I'm like, huh, that's a good question. I'm going to ask. So I go back and it's probably like May 1st or 2nd. I have a meeting with my CFO because I support his organization. We're talking about recruitment and whatnot. And then we change the subject. I'm like, hey, Spence, um, how do we get Netflix to put money into black banks? He's like, I mean, I've never thought of it. Why don't you do some research and let me know what you find? I mean, that's that could be something. I'm like, I will do that. Okay. So. I, I, know I connected with a friend, friend was like, read the color of money. It's going to tell you everything, you know? So the color mm-hmm. of money is a book by Marissa Baradaran yes. started reading the book. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea that this stuff existed this way. Connected with a couple of executives internally. They're like, Hey, you should talk to this one over here. You should talk to that one over there. You should put a proposal together. One of the people that they had me talk to was Bill Bynum, who was the who is the uh, CEO of Hope Credit Union, had been doing this kind of work for 40 years. Mm. Uh, And so I connected with him, pitched the idea. He's like, I think you have something. Let me know how I can help. I connected with an old mentor, Ray McGuire, who at the time was vice chairman of Citibank, had been head of investment banking globally for a number of years. I go to him and I'm like, hey, what do you think? He's like, I think it's I think it's an amazing idea. You should do it. And I'm like, if it's so great, like how come nobody's done it before? And he's like, because nobody's asked. Mm. I'm like, oh, is that okay? (laughs) Simple as that. (laughs) But to be honest with you, I was nervous because I'm like, what if it's not like, what if it's not a big deal? So I started, you know, it was all this self-doubt whatnot, but I put the proposal together, had it written on May 22nd, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. I sent it off to one of our executives like, hey, Dean, take a look at this. Let me know what you think. And... Monday turns around because that was a Friday, Monday, May 25th. Everybody is watching George Floyd being murdered, right? Mm, Yes. And I think everybody remembers what that was like because we were all stuck to our to our screens. And I had just put this proposal together and I hear that Reed Hastings, our CEO, had sent an email to his team saying, you know, I'm so tired of this. I, you know, I want to do something. I want to act. I don't know what to do, um, but we need to do something. Right. And I'm like, Ooh, he wants to do something. I think I have a plan. Now this plan was not about, you know, was not built around and not based on the George Floyd thing, Sure. but this happened. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to send this proposal to read. I'm going to see what happens. So I sent it to him on May 27th. And within an hour, he responds. Wow. And basically, it's like, let's figure out how to do this. So May 27th, that's when this momentum starts. You know, we start having all these conversations. But and things move very quickly at Netflix. By June 5th, we had sort of hit a wall on this thing because we had talked to a number of different banks. Mm -hmm. And all of them were like, look, we would love deposits, but deposits aren't going to help us. We, we can maybe take 2 million in deposits because our balance sheets need equity. Our balance sheets need sure. capital, all these other things. And so, you know, and I had spoken to Marissa Baradaran by this point in time, because I reached out to her cold caller, like, Hey, I'm at Netflix. And that usually gets people to answer. All you have to do is put Netflix in the subject. Right. <laughs> and so 
June 5th, I end up having this call with these folks from LISC, which is the Local Initiative Support Corporation, completely sort of unrelated. And I'm talking about the idea that I have. And they're like, man, well, let us know how we can help. Um, and they were talking to me about the funds that they create, the work that they do. And at one point, okay. I'm like, hey, I, t- I text the guy after the call. I'm like, hey, George, can y'all put together a fund that will allow us to move our money into the fund? And then mm. the fund can invest in the banks in the way the banks need the capital. And he's like, we've never done anything like that before, but we could figure it out. I'm like, can you figure it out by Monday? (laughs) And he's like, oh, y'all do move fast. So he comes back with a plan on like June 8th or 9th. We end up having a meeting with our treasury tune around June 10th. And we start working through all the details and whatnot. And by June 30th, we're ready to announce that we're going to be moving 10 million into Hope Credit Union, which was the Bill Biden wow. Bank, 25 million into LISC, and then we were going to spend the rest of the year trying to figure out what to do with the rest of the 65 million. But we had a number of conversations. But the real beauty of this thing was speaking to Mayor Sabaradaran, she's like, if you do it, make sure you make it a call to action because $100 million ain't going to do anything, right? The problem is a trillion dollar problem. Use your visibility as an organization to call attention to the problem and make it easy for other organizations to follow suit. So we did, right? When we, when we made our announcement, we're like, this is 2% of our cash holdings, right? Anybody can think about 2% of their cash holdings as opposed to thinking Mm -hmm. about a a specific number target. And if you can do 2% of cash holdings, if you did that across S and P 500 country companies, it's like $30 billion. So we made that announcement, was on CNBC, talked about it for about six minutes. And literally for the last 18 months, the momentum hasn't stopped. We've committed the full 100 million, at least almost a billion dollars from, or I think more than a billion dollars from across corporate America has moved in the same direction. And we're starting to see real meaningful growth and development happening in these communities. The LISC fund is, you know, fully subscribed and several other organizations are looking at different types of funds to solve for different parts of the ecosystem, right? Because ours was focused on banking, but you've got entrepreneurs, you've got, you know, community development corporations, you've got investments directly in real estate. And so all of these different organizations are doing their part to, figure out how to help to solve that systemic issue. So that's the story. Oh my goodness. So it all started with a question. <laughs> and Absolutely. it just seems like the momentum kept going because you kept asking questions. And it, it also, this seems like a, a constant thread throughout your career where, like you said, I don't know what it is that I'm going to do in this position, <laughs> but all I know is that, hey, I- I'm here to ask the questions, to figure it out, to get it done some yeah. way, somehow. Yeah, and, and you, you, you asked specifically about mindset, and it's, it's this sort of, I guess my mindset on this, these types of things is like, this has to happen. Mm. So every sort of closed door is just a pathway that I don't need to go down. And so I think about it as sort of narrowing the pathway as opposed ah. to, I guess I should give up. Right. And that's kind of been, that's been my mindset for the majority of my career. And, and to be honest, crafted and just growing up in New Haven, because 
we are from Connecticut, but we are yes. from parts of Connecticut that I don't think most people recognize as, as Connecticut, right? Absolutely. And, and, and you definitely have to have that, um, that scrappiness <laughs> and, you know, just the, the ability to figure it out, whatever it is, whatever comes next just that ability to figure it out. And this kind of lends to just um, your role as just kind of this internal change agent. And so in line with this conversation about mindset, you know, how do you think your mindset has really helped you to serve as an internal changing agent? You know, I think it's the, the sort of my, my mindset, which is one of just resilience and persistence, um, I think is very much born of my parents. Like, you know, I grew up, and, I, and I'll, I'll say it again, New Haven, Connecticut, which in addition to having the best pizzas, you know, New Haven in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up was also on the FBI's top 10 most dangerous cities lists. Um, the crack cocaine epidemic sort of damaged a lot of neighborhoods throughout the country. Um, and New Haven has a big sort of working class, uh, a bunch of different working class neighborhoods. And I grew up in one of those neighborhoods and I had, you know, my mother and my father who, you know, my mom, even though she was born and raised in this neighborhood, just had mm -hmm. this sort of mindset of, you know, this does not define me. My mm. mom was a, was a, was an activist, even when there was no, you know, parade or no, no, no rally. So just watching her always, always fight, fight the system, fight authority, like the stuff that she went into, went into to get me into that arts performing arts high school. Cause I mm -hmm. didn't get accepted even though I was supposed to based on my, my brother, my older brother having gone, ah. my mom basically protested the board of education. She's like, wow. you will do this right. Or he will be truant. And that's a you problem. And wow. so eventually, like after two months of keeping me out of school, they're like, okay, ma'am, let's have a conversation. And she's <laughs> like, now we're talking because my mom understood these systems and she knew how to, to, to navigate them, even though not even college educated, not even so. So I saw that every day, mm. right? My father is a mechanic, right? My father, super, you know, blue collar upbringing, dropped out of high school, GED. But my father read books to learn how to solve problems. Like if he had a mechanical problem, he'd get these manuals, he'd read them up, down and backwards and sideways until he could figure it out. So I got to watch that level of persistence. And even though like my parents did not like rise above and rise up out of, out of the sort of conditions of my upbringing, sure. they're still very much working class. There was this sort of like never give up mentality. Like we're going to do this until we do this until we do this. And every closed door is just one less, you know, for us to focus on. We, you know, we didn't have money at certain points, but we never went hungry. My mom always found a way to make sure that we were fed, even if it meant like writing checks that would bounce to get extra cash from the grocery store. So she could use that to give us money for, for school lunch. So my whole mentality is just like, this has to work. It just has to. And I'm going to keep trying until it does. 
So now that we have a little bit of insight about, you know, your the background, you know, the people that really influence you in terms of being this internal change agent and making these things happen, happen, you know, really living in this idea of it has to work. You know, sometimes there are roadblocks in the process. So what were some of your roadblocks along the way, um, either personally or professionally? And how did you navigate them and overcome them? So I'll tell you a, a personal story. Um, so, like I said, I moved out to Bakersfield, California, sight unseen. Right? Wow. <laughs> so let me let me tell you why I did this. Um, senior year of college, my at the time, girlfriend got like six different job offers and decides to accept this job offer in Bakersfield, California with Chevron. Um, big job. She was electrical engineer. It was like an amazing salary, but it was, ha- it was, you know, other side of the country. And so I stopped interviewing for roles uh, probably around like February um, because I didn't want to not be with her. So I'm like, I'm just going to move to California with you. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to get some jobs before I get there. But if I can't, I'll, I'll figure it out when I get there. Um, after we graduated from college, went back to New Haven thinking, I'm going to try to save up some money. I'll get a part-time job. I had worked at Walmart for two and a half years. I thought maybe I'll go back and they'll give me a part-time job for the six weeks and I can earn a little money. Sure. I'm, a good, I'm a good enough saxophone player now. Maybe I can earn a little bit of money. Okay. Gigging. You know, and so I was, yeah, just being scrappy and like nothing was clicking. Like Walmart was like, no, I even went to labor ready, which is like a, a contract agency. Like, yeah. Yeah, t- temp agency doing like road work. I couldn't get yeah. a road work job. I got a couple gigs as a musician, maybe paying 75 bucks here and there. Mm-hmm. And then I thought I had my big break. I got this gig with Tito Puente Jr. Oh, and wow. In New York. And I was like, yes. I have arrived. So, you know, <laughs> do the gig. It paid like 140 bucks, which was like twice as much as I was making at the time yeah. for, for gigs. And it was really close to when I was about to leave. So I'm like, finally, I'm going to get a little bit of money to move to California. Because by the way, I had, you know, $4,000 in credit card debt, which at the time was crippling. I had student loan debt that was going to need mm. to be paid off starting, you know, six months. No job. It was in a $600 cell phone bill. And I don't even remember how that happened. I think it may have been <laughs> irresponsibility. Like it was just stupid decisions. And so like I had this hole trying to get out of this hole, get the gig. It goes well enough. The guy who got me the gig decides he's going to drive me back up to New Haven from Nyack, New York. It's like two and a half hour drive okay. at like three in the morning. And okay, wow. <laughs> we end up falling asleep in the car and when he comes to loses control of the car we get hit by tractor trailer oh my goodness and the car gets completely totaled and smashed like it was it was scary because like you know the car got turned around such that when the when the truck hit us the 18 wheeler hit us it hit the passenger side door. So I see this big old grill coming toward me and it pushes us down the freeway on 95. I think we were like in Stratford or something like that. Wow. And I end up giving the, the guy who gave me a ride half the money I had earned over the summer to get back down to Philly. And so wipe out most of the saving, like most of the money that I had tried to scrap together 
I have to pay for the rental car for my brother to drive me down to Philly. So I end up getting to Bakersfield, California with like $20 and oh all this goodness. debt, like $20, literally, right? No job. And I, with the one thing I didn't mention is the whole time my girlfriend is like, why are you doing this? You don't have a job. How are you going to pay for stuff? And I'm like, well, we're going to live together, right? Because we had been living together in college. She's like, yeah, but your half of the rent will be due. And I'm like, okay, but like, I'm going to figure this out. Like, I will figure this out. I will figure this out. And I love you enough to move to California. So I'm thinking that this, there's a future here. So don't you see it too? And she was too anxious about it and too nervous about it. So I move out there with all of that going on. Wow. I had to end up borrowing money from, you know, my grandmother, my mom, my old saxophone teacher to pay some of these bills. Wow. And I'm like, if I can make this work, I can make anything work. But being in Bakersfield with $20 and then we get there. And none of our stuff, we had moved all of our stuff from Philly, TV, pots and pans, you know, of course, little odds and ends stuff here. It doesn't arrive. The moving (laughs) company loses it. We're eating off of, I'm not lying to you. The moving company loses it. And as we're trying to track it down, they get an attitude with us. So they end up stop. They don't even respond to us. Oh my goodness. So no job, debt. $20 $20 in my wallet, which had been spent by the time I got there. A girlfriend who's like, what you going to do? Every day was like, are you interviewing? And I'm like, as much as I can. I end up getting a job offer for like a, a, a sales job at a music store for like $1,100 a month. And I'm like, I'm not that desperate. I should be, but I'm not that desperate because I want to work in, what I, in the profession I went to school for. So... Long story long, I end up going to this like account temps, Robert Half. um, And I go there because I'm trying to get like temp work. And they're like, we like you. So we're going to hire you to work for us, not to be a temp. And that ends up being my first break. This only ends up taking two months, but it was the longest two months ever because... (laughs) Because it's like two months of like, I don't know if this is going to work. And Bakersfield, I had no network. I had no familiarity. It was completely culturally different. And it was the middle of summer. So oh Bakersfield is about 105 degrees oh my gosh. every day for like 40 days. And I had like, I was sharing my girlfriend's car at the time. So sometimes I'm walking to get to interviews and things like that. And it was terrible, but it finally, finally clicked, finally got the job. And that job led to, you know, an opportunity that led to a mentor who put me on to the job that I eventually got at Bold House Farms, which was really what accelerated my career. But it was really just this, I'm going to make this work. I'm going Mm -hmm. to make this work. I'm going to make this work. Like, I'm not sure why I didn't quit. There were days where I'm like, I don't know if it's worth it. And by the way, this girlfriend was like, I don't got you. She is now, you know, my (laughs) wife of, you know, we've been married. We'll be married for 15 years in September. We've been together for 21 years. I wouldn't have it any other way because she was real. She's like, Hmm. it's only going to work for me if you make it work for us. Like, I'm Hmm. not, I'm not going to, support 
a lack of effort. I got you if you're putting in all the work. And by the way, I'm also anxious as hell about all of this so that you're going to get all of that. And it worked. Talk about uh, pressure making diamonds. (laughs) Wow. Uh, But again, it, it just goes back to that theme of, hey, this has to work. And you doing what you had to do to make it work, whatever that might have looked like. So when it comes to your career, you know, what do you think is your vision for your life and your career beyond this point? I mean, right now you are in your dream job and, you know, you had some great moments along the way and there were some, you know, trying moments along the way. So looking for what does that look like for you? Um, I want to one, just continue to make good trouble, right? Mm. This this experience with the $100 million um, initiative at Netflix sort of exposed me to big system change that I didn't think was possible. Excuse me. So it's really about how do I do that type of work, that sort of big systemic change within animation, right? Because as I said, I love this job. I love this industry. I love this profession. And I want, I want to work with people to make it better for more and more people. Um, so that's a big one for me. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done in this space because uh, we're really, it feels like at the beginning of something really special. Um, I'm also sitting on a couple of nonprofit boards right now. So I'm on the board of the Atlanta Music Project, um, which is a, a tuition-free music education program down in Atlanta, very awesome. similar to a program that I got to experience when I was growing up. And so I'm super passionate about like music and the arts unlocking that potential because as I've made very clear, I don't really know what I'm doing, (laughs) but that's the cool thing about like going to a performing arts high school because you sort of embrace the, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know how to do that, right? Like I know how to operate in that ambiguity. I know how to create from nothing. And so that's been sort of a consistent theme. And I want to be able to help other kids sort of unlock that potential. Uh, The second nonprofit I'm on is the the People Concern. It's a homeless services organization here in LA. LA has about 66,000 unhoused people that are experiencing homelessness. It is a humanitarian crisis. And I want to do whatever I can with this in terms of resources, ideas, et cetera, to help, to help fix that problem because it's uh-huh. part of the same systemic issue that we're addressing when we're talking about moving money into these black banks. Absolutely. We live in a system where the haves and the have nots have been sort of predetermined. And if I can do anything to chip away at that system, you know, my mom worked at a homeless services or, or a homeless shelter when I was growing up. My dad experienced mm-hmm. homelessness for about 18 months after he dropped out of high school. Wow. My mom and dad actually met when my dad was homeless. So really? if, my, if my mom can look at my dad and see the potential, we're doing something wrong if we're allowing 66,000 people to remain unhoused and experiencing homelessness. If we're not thinking that these are our brothers, our sisters, our mothers and our fathers, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the last one, uh, UNICEF USA. Uh, UNICEF, I think a lot of folks are familiar with UNICEF, has been around for 75 years and is really focused on serving and, and helping uh, to solve the issues facing the world's children. And, 
you know, this next generation, we got to do something to prepare them to take over this world. And if I can be a part of that, that's super important to me. So making good trouble, advising on sort of big systems change. And I'm also writing a memoir because I like to tell these stories. Um, I, in telling these stories throughout like my career, people have found them useful. And so if I can string them all together and turn it into a book, um, I think it might be helpful for some folks. And, I'm, and, and the, the title of the book, and I've got about 100 pages written so far, okay. is I Hope I'm the Tortoise. And it's sort of thematically about this idea that, you know, slow and steady wins the race. You know, a lot of my life and a lot of my career has just been like, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. I'm not trying to get there quickly. I'm just trying not to stop. And mm -hmm. so... I hope I'm the tortoise again, just sort of pulls all that together across a series of stories from my life that I hope will help other people see themselves. Cause just to be clear, like I wasn't valedictorian. I graduated with like a 3.2 GPA didn't get stellar scores on my SATs or GMATs. So if you looked at all of these things, you'd be like, there is no reason why that should be this but I just kept doing it. And when people are like, you shouldn't apply to Harvard. I'm like, well, they can tell me no. And they didn't. I love that. And in alignment with this idea of, I hope I'm the tortoise and the lessons you have learned along the way. And, you know, I also see some of your nuggets of wisdom on LinkedIn as well. What advice or recommendations do you have for anyone who might be listening to this conversation today? Um, anyone who might be thinking uh, or, or maybe feeling, you know, those moments of, ah, I don't know if I have it in me. <laughs> I don't know if I can keep pressing forward doing this thing, or I'm not sure that this is going to quite work out for me. What would you tell them? It's going to be two words and I'll explain them um, or two phrases, I guess, uh, self-love and self-care. Um, mm. On the self-love piece, two things sort of come to mind. One, you know, I was just doing this diversity training and they said it takes five positive affirmations mm. to overcome one sort of negative criticism. And when you think about the world that we're living in right now and just all of the negativity that can come at us from different directions, we need to replace that with a lot of positive reinforcement. And it's not about lying to oneself, right? It's about speaking, speaking your own personal truth. Like when I was growing up, I did not like myself. And my mom thought it was hilarious. She's like, you have no reason not to love yourself. Like, what is wrong with you? And she was just in such disbelief in my self-delusion that I eventually started to believe her, but it took me years, right? Mm. And I was at a conference, I think it was back in 2019, Michelle Obama was speaking. It was right around the time, like becoming, she was doing her becoming tour. And, and somebody was like, how are you so authentic? Like you, you just, you just come across so authentic and genuine. And she like, she, she didn't even hesitate. And she's like, because I love myself. She's like, it's impossible not to be authentic when you love yourself. And so authenticity has become a big, big part of just me and how I show up. And it's because of the amount of time I spend 
focusing on that self-love, those positive affirmations, that belief that I am capable. And then the self-care piece, I got a therapist in August. Mm. I don't know why I didn't do it sooner. Actually, I do know why. Like, I thought, I got this under control. I can handle of this. Course. I'm not broken. Nothing's wrong with me. I'm different. And it's like, none of that stuff is true. Like, we all need self-care. We all need help. We all need somebody we to do. talk to. We all need that external voice, like the, the voice I had from my mom telling us, don't listen to that. You are amazing. You are special. Whatever it is that you need to hear, part of that's going to have to come from how you take care of yourself. I've been getting into meditation. I'm doing it every morning because I want to start the day off optimistic and hopeful and compassionate. Absolutely. If I'm not doing that, then I'm doing something wrong because, mm-hmm. you know, I wrote this quote on my board and I'm going to read it. It's, Choose not to be harmed and you won't feel harmed. Don't feel harmed and you haven't been. It's a quote from uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. It's like a 2,000-year-old quote. And it requires a lot of discipline to continue to remind yourself that the stuff that's happening out there doesn't really matter. And that's only going to come from whatever version of self-care you apply for yourself, like removing yourself from the noise, the nonsense, whether it's like getting your nails done or hanging out with friends or meditation or travel, whatever it is, got to feed yourself. So that's, that's, that's where I would focus my advice, self-love and self-care. And the reason I can do that is because it means so many different things to so many people. So it doesn't feel preachy or uh, too exactly. Well, I feel like that is an amazing place and space for us to end the conversation. It's, uh, that's kind of a mic drop moment. And I hope that whomever is out there listening has really, um, really will take the time to think about what self-care and self-love looks like for themselves. But I want to thank you, Aaron, um, for just spending some time hanging out with us and um, just sharing your thoughts and your wisdom and your perspective uh, from the things that you've been through in your life, um, it has been such fun just talk, hanging out with you again. Again, my fellow Connecticut native. And um, I wish you the absolute best in all of your endeavors. And I look forward to seeing some of that good trouble you, you will be making. And also definitely look forward to seeing the book when it comes out. Thank you so much, Cache, and, and really enjoyed this conversation. You know this, having, having grown up in Connecticut, we don't usually run into each other outside of, of where That's we grew true. up. So it's always that moment where it's like, you too, you did it. So, so this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm an extrovert. So whenever I can connect with and, and really have a genuine connection with somebody else, it's, it's wonderful. And this feels like something that we need to build on. And an opportunity for us to keep the conversation going. And like you said, building those networks. Thanks so much, Aaron. Thank you. You've been listening to The Mindset Advantage. Follow Arcadia Consulting on social media platforms to stay updated.